this evening and turn with me to John chapter number one. Fifteen years I've been preaching here almost now, and I'm not certain there's been too many sermons like tonight's is going to be. So, for about a week and a half, I've had two sermons ready to preach, (laughs) and I couldn't settle on which one to preach. Instead of squishing them together, you're going to get, hopefully, a good message about a very pertinent topic. Scott, I'm a little bit loud up here, I feel like. I don't know how loud I'm going to get tonight, but I feel like it at least right now. We will participate in the Lord's Supper this evening, and so when we have our communion services, the messages are usually a little more directed and pertinent towards Christ's death. But I feel like it is important in the recent events of our community, and I mean broader than just Georgetown, to comment on revival. I think what the sense of it is and what we are to make sense of it, I know there's probably in a church of 300 like we are on a Sunday morning, 299 different opinions as to what is good and what is godly and what is going on. In particular, what I want to speak to tonight is what it means for the believer in our church body. I have fielded over the last three weeks dozens of questions and have come to realize that within our church family, there is a great interest in revival. That's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, we have our fall revival scheduled. We don't do one every year. I believe the Christian, the believer in Jesus Christ, should be living in a constant state of renewal and reviving, but we put one on the schedule about every two or three years as there is opportunity, and I'm looking forward to Brother Dave Summerdorf being with us this coming October. Of course, I too am interested in revival. I personally, as a pastor, forsook secular pursuits for that of the sacred. I remember moving to Kentucky and meeting about every third person was a pastor or the son of a pastor or the grandson or granddaughter of a pastor. And the first couple years here, it was quite intimidating. I thought, man, everybody around here is a pastor. And I had given up secular pursuits with the desire to go full time into a Christian ministry of the pastorate. I did so because I believe that Christ can change lives. I personally believe that. The word revival is defined this way. It is to regain consciousness, to recover health, to restore someone to full stature of health. One author that I read this week defines spiritual revival the following way. They give effectively a pattern for it, and that's what I want to talk about to start this evening, the pattern of pattern of true revival. But here's what one author said. Following, or how does a revival happen? He says, following a period of spiritual decline, someone steps forward to acknowledge failure to live according to God's good and gracious law. Others then begin to see the problem, and they turn from their wayward path. God may hear their petition, 
and answer their cry for spiritual renewal. I thought that's a pretty good definition of what revival is as we know it broadly in the world. I find in the Bible, however, that there are four necessary elements, and that really is what's been pressing my heart because of the dozen or so phone calls that I've fielded and of the dozen or more besides them conversations that I've had, I get the sense that we need to know exactly what revival is, and maybe a more important answer is why revival is necessary. In the Bible, there's four necessary elements to revival. They are these, and they come in this order, by the way. You can write them down. There are no notes tonight. There'll be Bible verses that I'm going to put on the board, but there's no notes. Just me and you and God tonight and His book. The first is prayer. The second is penance. The third is preaching. And the fourth is purification. In other words, those are the four elements that must exist for true spiritual revival to take place. Let's look at the first one then this evening and understand what it means. Revival comes first in prayer. We all know the passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, do we not? We hear verse 14 quoted often. Well, let's set it within the context. Solomon is building the temple. They have completed the work of the temple. And in the midst of completing the work of the temple, or at the conclusion of it, God comes down and speaks to Solomon. And here's what the Bible says. God is speaking here in verse 13. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, pause. Those are the conditions. By the way, the promised land is our promised life in the New Testament. In the promised land, they were being devoured by locusts. There was no rain to nourish their crops. And the people were eaten up with plagues and pestilence. It is within this context that we get verse 14. If, conditionally, my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, God says in verse 15, and mine ears attend unto what? The prayer that is made in this place. Well, the Old Testament temple and tabernacle is us where the Spirit of God indwells and fills in the New Testament. And so we come in ourselves fully yielded and surrendered to God, and we offer earnest and sincere prayer to Him that He would revive us again, as the Bible says. What does prayer demonstrate? I hear dependence and humility. Surrender and submission, yieldedness. Do you know what prayer in the Bible is? It's a word of begging. It's a word of emptiness and helplessness. It would be akin in its Bible context and understanding to falling off a boat and yelling, Help! You can't swim to shore, you're in the middle of the sea. So when we think of revival, it comes first in prayer. 
Nobody walks into a church house, nobody walks into a gathering of people and experiences God and is revived if they've not been in a spirit of prayer. Period. I'm sorry, it just doesn't, nowhere in the Bible can you find that. Prayer is necessary. It's the first element of revival. By the way, why am I preaching this now? Because if we're going to have a revival and there is an earnest desire to see revival, which I will get to in a moment, it should be every day in your life, but if we want revival, well, buddy, we're going to have one. The question is, how serious are we about it? Secondly, revival comes through penance. I was texting someone this week, and I tried to type, God revives penitent people, and autocorrect made it say, God revives pertinent people. I'm not sure if they're pertinent or penitent, but both would be good. It would be pertinent that you are penitent so that you can be revived. What does it mean to be penitent or have penance or a sense of penance? Religion has co-opted and misused this idea of penance, but it is a Bible term and it is a Bible necessity for true revival to come. We might call that word penance godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Well, we find that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in verse number 10, the whole text, if you wanted to turn there, and I promise we'll get back to John 1. I promise. I've not lost my mind and I've not lost my place. All right. I'm just making sure that we get lost in the truth of the word of God. Revival comes through penance. And what Paul is writing at the end of most of his letters, there's a couple more chapters that fill out 2 Corinthians, but he's kind of winding down, not so much chastising a carnal group of believers at Corinth, but now he's saying to them some encouraging words. But in the midst of the encouraging words, he's talking to them about how they keep from being carnal, how they stay holy, how they keep the spirit of revival, if you will, fresh in their hearts. Here's what he says in verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. In other words, you'll never be sorry of the salvation you have with godly sorrow in your life. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. In other words, it's guilt-ridden. This one isn't. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. And the word carefulness here means mindfulness of our every move. What carefulness that godly sorrow wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. And we say, revenge? It has the idea of retribution against my flesh. Godly sorrow makes me hate my natural man. Like an exact revenge on it? Oh, if you're living in the Spirit, it's the sweetest revenge you will ever live. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong. He's addressing a particular issue here. Nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Or it might be obvious and plain to you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort or in your consolation. We took consolation in the fact that you were consoled by getting right with God, he says. Yea, and exceedingly more joyed we were for the joy of Titus, the preacher who carried the news back to them, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. This is penance. 
You want revival? You got to pray. You want revival? You got to be sorry. And not because I make you guilty. That's what Paul, by the way, in the verses before he addresses. Look, I didn't write to just make you sorry. I wrote that you would understand what you must repent of. True revival does not come with an experience. It comes with evidence, the Bible teaches. That evidence is a truly penitent person. You cannot walk away from true revival and remain the same person. It comes in prayer. It comes through penance. But fourth, revival comes by preaching. You study the Bible and you prove that I'm wrong. Now, I'm going to say this with all seriousness. I'm telling you, if I'm wrong, you come show me. But there's never been a revival in the whole of the Scripture that has been done by singing and prayer alone. It's always by the Word of God. Well, that's a lot of job security for you, fundamental preacher. And the answer is, shouldn't be. You have the Bible in your home every day. You don't need me to teach you, unless your babes is needing just the milk of the Word. My point in saying that is not positionally defensive. It's biblically defensive. If you exempt the Word of God from a meeting that is called a revival, you've exempted God from the revival. There's nothing good that comes from it. Every revival or refreshing or renewal found in the Bible centers on God's Word and His truth being proclaimed. In some instances, that means they found the Word of God. In certain cases in the Kings, when the law was lost and they found it, there was a national revival because they found it and they read it and they repented and prayed. All of the elements are always there. But everyone focused on the truth, God's Word. By the way, that is not to say that singing and testifying and study groups can't be used to edify, but the primacy of preaching is the key to all reviving of our spiritual man. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save some of them that believe or all of them that believe? And the answer is, them that believe, all of them. It's always the Word of God. You wonder why as a church we take a stand on the primacy of preaching and the Word of God? Well, man, we could hip it up around here if we wanted to. I'm sure we could. I'm pretty good at entertaining people. Anybody that's been to my house has had a good time at our house. I tell a lot of good jokes, and I tell a lot of dad jokes. But you didn't come to hear that. You came to hear the book. My singular calling week after week, and the bigger the church gets, the harder it gets for me, is to set aside all distractions and focus on the fact that I have to deliver, thus saith the Lord to you, in a way that is encouraging and edifying and exhorting so that you can go out and do it with all of your might this week. It's my job. It's my calling. He goes on in the same passage, for the Jews require a sign. In other words, they want an experience. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Prove it to me logically, 16 ways from Sunday. 
But we, Paul said, preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, a stumbling block. They can't get over it. It's too simple. There's got to be some theatrics to it. And under the Greeks, foolishness. That's just simpleton talk. But to them which are called both Jews and Greeks, in other words, those who receive salvation, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Look, that's what preaching does for you. It gives you the power and the person, his wisdom, in your life. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. By the way, that's us. <laughs> when Paul writes that, you kind of wish what he was writing there, like, couldn't he just say, like, there's some of us that are really smart people? What does he say? Not many wise. Well, I'm in that group, thankfully. I'm one of the few wise that found the Lord. He says, look, we're just a bunch of rabble-rousers. We're just a bunch of people that are nobodies. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There is nothing at the judgment seat that I will say, hey, did you see how I pastored for low those 15 or 25 or 50 years? He will say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter ye into the joy of the Lord. He'll say the same thing to you if you're faithful to him. There's no flesh that should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Revival comes in prayer. Revival comes through penance. Revival comes by preaching. And fourth, revival comes with purification. I almost put perfection, and by that I mean maturity, but some people are getting saved in revival, and that is hard to be perfect. The idea is when you get saved or when you get serious and get sanctified and start walking with the Lord again because of revival, there is purification, that is sure, from everyone that I can study and know in the Word of God. God's Spirit indwells the believer. This is the purifying element of our lives. But He will not fill the believer until that believer is empty of themselves. Sometime at a free time, ask Edward to share with you his analogy or picture of the cork going under the water and how we are filled with the Spirit of God. It's a good analogy. It's a good picture. Galatians 3 and verse 2, Paul says this, This only would I learn of you. He said, hey, let me ask you a question if I can. If you don't mind, give me a little bit of your attention. And, and let me ask you a question. Received ye the Spirit by works of the law? In other words, was it through your own efforts, your, th your, your own uh, histrionics, your own theatrical efforts? Was it through your own doing or by the hearing of faith? The answer to Paul's rhetorical question is by the hearing of faith. That's how we receive the Spirit of God. When we talk about purification, there is no goal of a revival. I've heard, and by the way, when we have a revival speaker come in here, I will preach in the months of October and September and October, probably some messages getting our hearts ready for that. That would be my hope. And you say, well, if you think you can be revived day by day, why do we have to have a special one? And the answer is, truthfully, 
It's not that special. It's just somebody else coming and calling in the wilderness like I do every Sunday morning and like other men do on Sunday evenings most times. The moment a revival takes on a goal, it becomes a movement. Be careful. Understand what I'm saying here. Reviving comes by the natural work of the Spirit of God. It's who He is. And that's the beautiful thing about where and when revivals have sprung up through the ages and how God has worked. If God's Spirit is filling believers, then those believers will be purified from their sinfulness. No one that has a reviving of the Spirit of God continues in sin. Grace cannot and will not abound in such a person. The gracious filling of the Spirit does not need a movement. Rather, it needs you moment by moment being surrendered to Him. You could have a revival right now while I'm preaching. I guess if I wanted to be real old school fundamentalist, I could be like, you could have a revival and you could have a revival. But that doesn't do it. That's not the secret. That's not how it works. These are serious matters. As a pastor, I take it very seriously. I've had parents who've said, hey, my kids are going. Would you pray? And I said, yes. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? I said, I think it's your thing. You need to make sure that you have conversations with them. Why? Because all faith begins first in the home and in the family. Prayer, penance, The power of God's word and preaching produce purity and holiness in a wicked vessel. If it got you excited and you ran out of the building yelling hallelujah, that ain't a revival. I'm sorry. Wow, you're just an old school fuddy-duddy. If that's what makes the Bible the Bible, then yes, I am. The amazing fact to me is that the spirit of revival is an event that can, and I would argue should, occur every day. Regeneration and revival are of God's grace. Here's what Jeremiah the prophet said in the Old Testament. Speaking of, by the way, revival that was to come to Israel, but also the revival that will come in the millennial kingdom. If you read all of Jeremiah chapter 3, he says this, God speaking to him, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, he's telling Jeremiah what to say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity. There's the penance. That thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. The mercies of God in the Old Testament are comparable to the grace of God in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath what? Appeared to all men. We sang several months ago in our hymn of the month, in grace alone, the first line is wonderful. Grace, tis a charming sound, harmonious to the ears. Revival is just God pouring out His grace upon us. 
It is by God's grace that we are saved. It is by His mercies that we are not consumed. It is in this remembrance time this evening that we reflect once again on just how helpless we are and that our whole race is. By the way, that's what people in the current age of revival that is being spoken of are seeking. That is a good thing. They want to know God and the grace of God in truth in their life. By the way, that's why as we preach this morning, it's so important for you to live grace before their eyes every day. They need to know where to go and to whom they can ask questions for help and health. If you're a believer this evening, then taking part in the Lord's Supper is cause to reflect on the immeasurable grace of God and the true regeneration that happened on the day of your salvation and the purpose of reviving your spirit, renewing your spirit day by day is. Here in the text I had you turn to in John chapter number 1, we read several verses of Scripture. We're going to read the first 17 because it speaks of the fact of what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to make us the sons of God. He came to be grace and truth for us. He says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Oh, there's certainly a lot of teaching and preaching that can be done on this vein, in this vein about what Jesus Christ is. But make no mistake, He is the life source. If we're talking about restoring someone to life, restoring someone to health, He is the life. Amen. He's the source of it all. Verse number 6 goes on, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ might believe. He, John the Baptist, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, Jesus Christ. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh. In other words, they didn't energize themselves. They didn't exercise themselves until they became the Son of God. No, there was belief in Jesus Christ, and that brought salvation. But of God, he says in verse 13, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. You can get a little envy when you read that parenthetical statement, by the way. It's holy and righteous envy. But John is writing to us, we saw him. Someday we will see him face to face, but we aren't in that parentheses yet. He goes on to say this, if we take the parentheses out, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. John, bear witness of him, and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received. And grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. But grace, that is true, lasting, eternal grace. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
John here explains that all we gain by Christ's appearing is summed up in the fact that we have received grace and truth. When we think of deep truths, doctrinal truths of the Bible, one of the first that we think of is this grace of God, this reviving that God brings to us, and He does so in such a gracious way. One of the unfortunate things about church and Christianity, the reason periodic revivals are needed is that words and phrases so often become trite and tired. We become lazy. They lose their meaning to us, even though the truth about God's grace ought to mean everything to us. God's grace is manifested for us, to us, in us, through us, and by us. That is what God's grace does. It's a multi-pronged, multi-approach, or multi-faceted approach to what grace can do because it's God and it's His grace. When we say God's grace is for us, God's grace then is manifested most clearly in salvation. We quoted Titus 2.11, but I'll put it again on the board. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Without God's grace, there is no salvation. God's grace to us is manifested most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. We just read it here in John 1, verses 14 and 17. He is full of grace and truth, it says at the end of verse 14. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ in verse 17. Paul said it this way in Romans 3 and verse 24 in the midst of explaining that Jesus Christ could be the just justifier of all of mankind. He says this in verse number 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other manifestation of grace that is more clear and powerful to us than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is for us, grace is to us, but grace is also in us. God's grace is manifested most clearly in us by the Holy Spirit's presence. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14, the Bible says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion, that word communion means the partnering presence of the Holy Ghost be with you all, amen, or so be it. What Paul is telling them there in that verse is that you and I should understand, well, we understand it's the second epistle to the Corinthians as well in that verse. But the first part on the sentence there is what we need. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion, the partnering presence of the Holy Ghost. Finally, we note that grace is through us. Grace through us is manifested most clearly through our progressive sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Interestingly enough, you can put that one back up there, Brother Mark. That word sanctified simply means or is a verb in the present tense with the passive voice. Now, I know many of you are deep Bible scholars of Bible words. What does that mean? Well, it means just this, that the one offering... Salvation is perpetually perfecting those who allow that salvation to sanctify or change them. That's what it means. 
It brings to light what Peter would write in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18 when he says, But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and forever. Amen. Finally, it is by us. God's grace is manifested most clearly in our humble service to others. In other words, what His grace changes in us through its process of sanctification, His daily renewal and revival of us, we take out in humble service for other, to others. Ephesians 2 and verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The grace of God, then, is all-encompassing in our lives. And if it is present and real day by day, may I say to you, you will walk in a spirit of revival daily. I read this this week, and I thought it was important. I wanted to read it. It's really tiny print, so I really have to use my glasses this go-round. It was in a book that I was reading recently on different doctrines of the Bible. Zach is making me work sometimes, and his ordination preparation that is going to be at the end of April. And I came across this this week, and I wanted to read it to you because it really speaks to what we're talking about. People who've grown up in and around God, people who've grown up around church, and they're intrigued by the concept of being revived. May I say to you, don't ever lose the thought of being revived. But also act on that thought of revival. It's a wonderful story about God's grace, the forsaking of it, and then the finding of it. The story goes this way. There was one who had experienced this grace of God. He had been raised in a Christian home in England, and in his earliest years had been taught the truths of a gracious God who bringeth salvation to all men. But he was orphaned at six years of age, and he became, even as a small lad, a wanderer. He was raised by a non-Christian relative who scoffed at all that he had been taught by godly parents. He became an apprentice seaman in order to get away from the conditions of the home of the relatives and joined the Royal Navy after he had served his apprenticeship. While he was enlisted in the Royal Navy, he deserted and went to Africa. He testified that he went for one purpose, to sin to his fill. After this young man came into Africa, he joined himself to a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated by the black woman who had become the chief of the harem. She took out her hatred for her Portuguese white husband on this little lad, treated him like a dog. She exercised such authority over him that she threw his food on the floor and he was compelled to eat off the floor or be lashed. He fled from this cruelty and after escaping made his way to the coast where he attracted a ship by building a fire. The ship's master was disappointed for he thought that the fire meant that someone had either slaves or ivory to sell. But the young man was picked up nevertheless. Because he was a skilled navigator, he was made a mate on the trading vessel which was making its way up the coast of Africa back to England. On one occasion, he opened the cask of rum and distributed to the crew so that the entire crew got drunk. The ship's master was so incensed that he had the mate thrown into chains. When he was brought up from below to be punished, the captain treated him so brutally that he was knocked overboard. And he was saved from death by drowning by the captain who threw a harpoon and speared him. He carried that scar of deep wound into which he he could put his fist until the time of his death. 
As the ship made its way to Great Britain, it was blown off course. When the ship began to flounder, the young man was sent down into the hold to, the main, to man the pumps along with the slaves who were being transported. It was there that he cried out to God out of the hold of the ship. The truth he had been taught as a child came home to him, and he came to know Christ as a Savior while he struggled over the bilge pump. It was this same John Newton who wrote these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Tonight, as we turn to the Lord's table, we remember that Jesus.